When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mr. Malcolm Hillgartner. How about you introduce yourself, sir? Uh, I'm Malcolm Hillgartner. I'm an audiobook narrator, among other things, and uh, of some, I guess I've done about 250-some books so far. So. I, I got started late on this. I only picked it up about 2007, started yeah. doing this. Yeah. So, so with, and I, I just kind of like to ask questions off the top of my head, so you'll yeah. have to be patient with me if my with my simpleton questions. Um, so like what where do you see where do you see strengths and weaknesses in the sense are there days where you go in and you're you're just on fire is it something that you can kind of just turn on no matter what you know it's whether you're tired you go in there and it's kind of you know game face dump the cold water on your head or is it yeah well you know in a way that that, that that's the very definition of professionalism you know is, is that you you, you put on a good show, or, you know, you do a good job when you don't feel like it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there are days, I have to say. But for the most part, I, I always kind of pinch myself feeling like, you know, how lucky can I get that I can can have a job where I can go to work in my underwear if I feel like it back in that <laughs> my room. Back there. I, call it, I call it my pit of despair, but that, uh, you know. <laughs> That's what, you're a Princess Bride fan. But yeah. Well, that's that's what I tell people about about doing this podcast. I'm like, you know, who knows? Am I wearing pants or not? You know, that's the great mystery of every episode. Who, you know? I mean, do I always have great books. No, but what I do have is constant uh, constant stimulation in all sorts of different ways, uh, intellectually, uh, emotionally. You know, depending on the on the material. This past month, say, I just finished doing a, a massive. Literally yesterday, finished a massive uh, uh, book by a, a German author, sort of a retelling of the Faust story. Okay. So that'll give an idea. And he kind of recast it as a political thriller in 16th century Europe, you know. Okay. So a different take on a little bit of uh, what's his face, uh, Da Vinci Code kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. Before that, I did a uh, uh, a really great his- history called American Hannibal. Okay. By Jim Stemple, uh, about uh, General Daniel Morgan, who was the kind of genius behind the the, the Battle of Cowpens in the, the Revolutionary mm-hmm. War, that he makes a I, th- I thought a very good case about how that completely changed set up Yorktown. Let's put it that way. Okay. It it got Cornwallis t- to change his strategy, and he wound up backing his way into Virginia, where he got pinned in by by Washington and the, the French Navy out mm-hmm. in Chesapeake Bay. So it, it would, and I, I love that stuff because I, I, I have to say, I probably love doing the history stuff the most. Yeah. Uh, I just I just eat it up because I'm a history uh, nut. So. Yeah. Uh, I, I love, uh, in the last couple of years, I've realized I'm a bio, I had a, I graduated with a biology degree from the University of Georgia in 2013. Yeah. Got into medical school, but decided I didn't want to go. Really in the last two years, Maybe three years. I've I've discovered just how much of a history buff I am for the Cold War. Forty-five. Yeah, I'm a lapsed pre-med myself. Really? <laughs> I started off in college, you know, going pre-med, and uh, and kind of made a severe 
left turn into you know uh, theater and the the arts and stuff like that i discovered that and i still do i love science i love reading about it i love knowing about it i got into a couple of labs mm-hmm. you know in, in college and i kind of went this isn't me yeah. you know I'm, I'm not i'm not cut out for this yeah. so i love reading about it yeah and, uh, yeah i'm I, I i went the whole way i i got into the university of miami in uh, Miller School of Medicine, and that, uh-huh. I mean, that's all I did for four years was study, research, I, I published research, I shadowed, doc- I did the whole nine yards, I did it, and I realized at the end, I was like, I think more than anything, I was proud of the fact that I did it, rather than like a true love for it. I was like, oh, cool, I did it. You know, again, all very interesting stuff, organic chemistry, biochemistry, molecular biology, it's all great. But I don't know if that's where I, my heart was for 40 years. You got, you got way further than I did, I have to say. It was, uh, uh, um, it was a, ca- a class in microbiology that kind of did me in. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, you know, there's one class that just makes you realize, like, no. But, yeah, for, for, like, for like the Cold War, yeah, there are always things I learned that always, I mean, for lack of a more original term, blow my mind, where I realized just how, just how absurd a lot of history is that we never we never learned about i mean you know i, I mean I, the one analogy i always use is like think of operation paperclip right under curtis lemay bringing over all these bringing about two-thirds of the nazi rocket scientists to the united states to develop liquid and solid field rockets ultimately to be able to put icbms in russia and then put us to the moon for a propaganda win imagine you're in 1947 america Right, Uncle Sam will never would never say anything that isn't in your best interest. Right, can you know control and I'm, for better or worse, that's just what it was. Imagine if someone came to you and said, "Hey, there's a secret military base in the desert that uh, that Uncle Sam doesn't tell you about." Uncle Sam wouldn't lie to me. Who's there? You remember Hitler and all those guys that we we killed them all two years ago? They're actually living there in really nice homes. No, they're not. What are they going to try to do? Actually, they're going to put us on the moon. That would be the most ridiculous conspiracy you'd ever heard, but that's exactly what happened. And yeah, but I have to say, it wasn't necessarily a secret conspiracy. It was pretty sure. Open, because interestingly, I just uh, I just narrated a, a book a couple months ago by uh, David Nassau called "The Last Million, Okay, uh, which kind of dovetails a little bit with this. It, it, uh, what you're talking about, and not in terms of the conspiracy part of it, but uh, in terms of how messy history is yeah uh, it, it, at the end of world war ii there was something like three million refugees in germany uh most of whom were from either uh freed prisoners uh the, the few remaining survivors of some of the death camps uh, a lot of uh, uh russians a lot of uh, you know and a lot of german prisoners and hidden in among these refugees were a lot of uh um Nazi sympathizers mm-hmm. or actually collaborationists, a lot of them from what are today Belarus, Lithuania, and uh, Estonia. And uh, it, it was pretty it was pretty horrifying to to read how the obsession after the end of World War II was root out the communists. Mm-hmm. And so meanwhile, we gave a pass mm-hmm. to immigrate to this country to a lot of people who ultimately we found out were Nazis were, or some were Nazis, you know, yeah. and, but it was done, you know, it, it went, on one hand you go, my God, in a space of less than a year, the allied, uh, the combined U.S., 
British, French, and whatever, were able to to patriate roughly three million people in in uh, in different countries around the world, uh, or you know, and particularly in the case of the Jews, there was no way that they were going to stay. The ones that survived that were going to stay in Germany. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And but but we also we 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 didn't want to get involved in in what was the nascent looming problem in in Palestine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really want to try to keep hands off of that, and that didn't work. Yeah, you know, I, you know it, but a lot of that stuff you realize it's it's sort of like uh, that old Indiana Jones thing. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. We're making this up as we go along, and, uh, and so that's hundred percent, a hundred percent. We always talk about that in terms of the battle, you know, the fog of battle. You uh-huh. know, all the greatest plans in the world as soon as boots hit the ground, all doesn't help. It just it's yeah. all. I think that's actually the best way to put it is it's it's very messy. It's not it's not, you know, in hindsight we learn it as this very tucked in and then this happened and then Hitler came to power and on this day he committed suicide. World War 2 was over and then yeah. Mickey Mantle won a World Series and it's just like da 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 da. da. And in hindsight we put all of these nice little lines together. Uh-huh. They all uh-huh. kind of seem to make sense and they all combine to put together a coherent narrative and uh I'm always impressed with the historians that kind of say not at all. It's a little more complicated than that. It's insane yeah. is what it is. It's it's yeah. I mean another one is unit 731 in Japan who according to according to one according to one historian made the Nazis look like boy scouts. Some of the things they would do in Manchuria including to United States servicemen. And we went in there at the end and we took the highest up members of all of them all the the head biologists, head bioweapons guys, and we brought them all to the United States because the idea was. I'm aware of this. I was not aware of this. That one, it's that I heard it from a Jocko Willink, a Navy SEAL who has a great podcast. But we brought them all to the United States because the the idea was, you know, it's again Nazis in Germany. It's like we should kill them all, but hey, if we don't have them, they're going to be with the Soviets. Which one's the greater evil? And it gets, I mean, you really start making these sort of dark deals when it comes to whole, you know, national security. So Unit 7. Information that we want. Yeah, Unit 731 was like, hey, these guys are demons from hell, but the information, they they have all the data. We know what these weapons now do to people. If we don't roll in there and take everything, the Soviets will. And it's it's Truman with the hydrogen bomb. You know, when, when, when briefed on it, his only question was, can the Soviets do it? And he was told within a couple of years. So he said, so we have to do it first. Yeah. It's that's what a lot of history, at least in my limited, I guess, understanding and reading of history is just how many deals with like the devil or how many deals with bad people are made so that you don't have to deal with the devil. If that makes sense. That's the hope. That's the hope. Yeah. And then I don't know. And then you can do this whole cliche. Do we become the devil in the meantime? Who knows? But it's, yeah, that's what a lot of reading it. But for me, that's just that's that's what I listen to on on Audible. But you actually, so you read this stuff, and that, and that's where you take in a lot of this. Yeah, well, sometimes I feel like since I started doing this, because of so many different books that I've read, I, I feel like I've been going to permanent graduate school, you know, in in, in various forms, you know, not necessarily because lately, uh, probably for the last three or four years, I would say the bulk of what I do is nonfiction. Yeah, and. And because of my background, you know, my dad, my dad w- worked for the Voice of America, and so we were okay. stationed. We were stationed in North Africa for many years in Morocco, and as a result, 
although I don't speak Arabic, uh, I'm very conversant with a lot of it and very comfortable pronouncing uh, a lot of uh, Middle Eastern languages. And so what's happened to me is that a lot of a lot of books that are about either the situation or the history of the U.S. involvement in the Middle East and stuff like that, I've wound up getting a lot of those because I can handle the pronunciations mm-hmm. of all the various names and stuff. <clears throat> it's a long way of saying it. Just a lot of stuff has come my way that I probably would not have necessarily read. Yeah, yeah. First, yeah. You know, and uh, and it's it's so it's been a real education. It's been really good. What are some of the like oddest? Um parallels or or dots you've connected through all these things you read like um like i find myself making the oddest analogies you know you know i'll be talking about the cold war but i'll relate it to organic chemistry or something well I, oh i don't know about yeah oh that's interesting well, well, so something like of all the books you've read you start to see like the alchemist um they talk you know in the book i, I can never pronounce his last name silo paulo silo yeah. But he talks about how like all the secrets of the universe can be written on like a grain of sand. Like there's only a couple. They just manifest in different ways. We see them as if you you know wake up early, get to the gym for okay, early bird gets the worm. Now that can take shape in a million different ways, or it's do unto others as you would like to have come to you. We can see that in a million different you know karma's a bitch, blah blah blah. But there's only like a couple real you know everything that everyone dies in the end. Like, but I found that you can kind of find those lessons in different things. I mean, you could say immigration as well as like active diffusion in a cell, like, you know, only so many can come in. Okay. Along those lines, and this is, it's maybe a little, not Pollyanna-ish on my part, but one of the things that's really come through to me uh, in terms of reading a lot of contemporary history or recent history, going back to say uh, 20th century history and and beyond uh, and and more more 21st history more recently is that, I come away with, I guess, more empathy for the various actors involved. Yeah. By that I mean, I see people trying to do their best. Yeah. They inevitably and invariably F it up. <laughs> but they, they're trying. So, so then you get to the, you know, I mean, there was all the, the stuff about the best and the brightest in the early 60s, right? You know, and how that didn't work out very well, blah, 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 whatever, you know. But it's always that way. We always try to get the best, you know, people are in foreign policy and in the military, you know, strategies in terms of creative. They're trying to make the best of what they can see. It's just that we're like those what is those wise men in the in India, you know, in the body of the camel or whatever, the elephant, only seeing one piece of the pie at any given time. And so necessarily the vision is limited. A really good example of this was a series, two, two really terrific books by the journalist Steve Call. Uh, one of them was, um, uh, they're both about the, from the lens of the CIA, American involvement in Afghanistan. Starting from the Soviet invasion in 89 or so, all the way up through, uh, he he finally brought it up to fairly, well, I read the second book uh, uh, about a year ago, so that he brought it up that far. And, you know, I'm looking at, it doesn't matter who the actors are, Democrat, Republican, uh, Iranian, whatever, they're all trying to do the best they can. Yeah. He does a good job of kind of demonizing the Pakistani Secret Service, but uh, they got a lot to answer for. They do. O- Osama uh, and Abbottabad. 
Oh boy. Oh. <laughs> but but you know, and on the other hand, you know, kind of look as they they see themselves as you know protecting their country. So yeah. it, that, that, I guess the point is I'm getting is that I see a lot of people trying really hard, and I'm thinking in terms of the lens of American involvement. I see a lot of different actors, many of whose names we know and have heard of, and they're on either side of the ideological spectrum. I can't look at these people and go, well, you're a jerk and you're a hero. I'm going, man, I just see people trying to get in there and do something. And lots of times they just don't get it right. And and, and we pay for it over and over again. Yeah. That's the big lesson I learned. I I would say that's not, you know, completely just taking credit for what you just said that's now i can i can kind of look back and i'm i would say that that's applicable yeah is it's very easy to he was x he was y and they were evil and a lot of times is it's guys like you and me who are fighting for the place that they know as home for the people that they know as family for the land that they know as their childhood homeland and they're going to fight to the death for that if i do it you know I call it patriotism. I look at, you know, the, what the CIA does. I'm like, it's for national security. But if I'm in Guatemala and a bunch of white guys and uh, private jets came down and just toppled my democrat- democratically elected government, now they look at us as we're evil. But if they asked me, I'd be like, we're trying to do the best we can for this area. And it's like, man. They're... Which makes it even more bitter when when – when sometimes it's characterized as you know you're going to go and preserve democracy, for, but basically what you're doing is preserving an, uh, an economic uh, uh, paradigm, big trough for for some um, uh, corporation. You know, it, and I'm thinking this terms in terms of uh, Central America. Yeah, uh, we have a lot to answer for in terms of our political involvement in Central Africa, Central America for the last hundred years because of that, because of, you know, but it's something we can deal with, but it, 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 we never get anywhere when we demonize the players because then all it does is make people, you know, back up, back into their positions and they dig in. It's just a matter you look at it, you try to analyze it and find a way to move forward in a way that acknowledges the mistakes, if they were mistakes of the past, recognize the successes and try to build on them i guess that's about all we can do reasonably but uh it seems to be really hard <laughs> <laughs> have, have have you heard of um general smedley butler retired in 1933 yeah 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 oh not a lot yeah. of, uh, i'm trying to think of what, what context did it just come up south america government involvement for big business oh oh, oh you mean in our conversation or in general no, 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 no. I, I, I was just reading. I, his name just came up in something I was reading. Yeah. And that's the other thing, too. Sometimes I feel like I have half-heimers. Yeah. You know, I remember, <laughs> I, I remember something of it, but I don't remember the real meat of it. And, yeah. Because uh, so much is bouncing through the brain. But, yeah, uh, yeah I, just, I just remember reading about him recently, and I can't remember the context. It'll come to me uh, when we talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. He is, in my mind, is he gave – he. In a sense, he gave the military-industrial complex speech 30 years before Eisenhower. Uh, and he's a guy that went in in like the 1890s, maybe 1880s, was in every conflict, rose through the ranks. I think he's the most decorated Marine in American history, you know, through World War One, Caribbean. Um, was, um, he, was he involved in the uh, Spanish-American War? Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that's the context that I that I read. It, okay, that I read. yeah. Yeah, he, he, was, he was involved in... I mean, yeah, so as he rose up through the ranks and he finally got out, 
And in uh, 1933, um, J.P. Morgan and some other big players, I think the grandfather of George Bush, Prescott Bush, they wanted him to take the bonus army, which were a bunch of veterans from World War One that had yet to receive their bonus. So in 1933, like 14 years later, and on a side note, if that's not, a, I guess, a timeless tale of us not taking care of our veterans, but they kind of gathered on the National Mall in like 1933, and they wanted their bonus. And they had General, General Smedley Butler would go speak to him. These guys loved him. A lot of them fought with him. They got their wounds with him, and he was always right there with them. And these two big business guys, Rockefeller and or not Rockefeller, Morgan and Prescott Bush, they came to him under the guise of like, hey, you should rally all them together. And what we'll do is we're going to go get them their money. But Smedley Butler was just, you know, he didn't he didn't fall off the truck yesterday. He was he kind of waited out and he was like, let's hear him out. That's yeah. it. That's what came up. It was in 33. You're the right. Business that's, plot. That's where I read about it. Yeah. yeah. And he, and he, if it wasn't for him, we probably would have had a, a ultra wing, a fascist takeover. Yep. Of yep. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's something we don't learn about in school. It's the business plot, capital B, capital P, the business plot of 1933. They came to him and they came to him and they said, hey, you know, we, we want, we're doing this to go get the money for all the soldiers. And he was kind of like, okay. And, and he kind of waited it out and, and kind of played dumb like a fox. And found out what they wanted was for him to use this army of veterans to go overthrow the White House, take out FDR, and they wanted to reestablish gold as the backing of our fiat currency. And he said, like, you know, this is basically tre- treason. And, you know, but because he went along with it, just like, you know, just guy was a machine, went along with it and exposed it. But I say all that to say he had a great quote about <clears throat> about what he learned over his years rising through the ranks and it culminated with like you know i thought i was going there you know behind the flag i thought i was going to do this and he's like what i have truly learned is you know it's too coincidental that every time something happens where wall street can't make their money here or where this company you know dole all of a sudden can't they don't have the rights to the bananas and wherever or you know uh, Standard Oil all of a sudden can't go unfettered into the Middle East. Ironically enough, within a couple of years, we have a conflict, and I have to go in there with the hand of God and establish peace. And he goes, I realize years later, you know, that I am the muscle man for these business interests. He said, unless we are protecting our shores, our borders, or the Bill of Rights, if it's not one of those, it's a racket. And that's where he coined the war is a racket. And he goes, after World War One, there are a lot of millionaires and even a couple billionaires minted. And he goes on and on to say, he goes, I've worked as a muscle man for all these big business interests. And at the end, he has one line where he goes, I could probably give Al Capone a few pointers. He operated in three counties. I operated on three continents. And say all that to say, that's another theme I've started to pick up in history is, oh, you can kind of pick out What's the one underlying thing of really all conflict? Someone somewhere is making a ton of money. And I don't really know why I would just went on that whole rant. But yeah, that's... Well, I, I, I can't... I certainly agree with you. Yeah, and actually, though, is there a specific book that you're describing here that where he talks about this or was in an article or something? Because I'd like to read more about this. Yeah, I'll, no, I, I was going to pull it up earlier. Um, so he has a book that I haven't listened to yet. But someone narrated, obviously, Smelly Butler's been dead for, you know, 70 years. But he wrote a book, War is a Racket. But I think it's just his speech. 
But there is a book that I got all of this from called The Plot to Seize the White House by Jules Archer. I'll email it to you after this. That book, it paints it all out. And it is, I mean, I mean, it, it almost, re, you, you feel like you're reading a fiction book because you're like, I've never heard of any of this. This isn't real. This is a really nice conspiracy book that would probably be a good movie. But then you go and look all of it up and there it all is. And you're like, what is this? They tried to overthrow FDR, the grandfather of the of, of a sitting president, not a sitting president, a former president. But it, I've been talking about that book a lot the last month or two because it's really kind of reshaped my entire view of everything. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm listening to The War State by Michael Swanson, which is kind of about um, – not kind of about it's about uh what eisenhower warned about the military industrial complex beware of the military industrial complex and its influences in our government and kind of how that's the underlying theme it's like it doesn't matter who you elect it doesn't sure you can have johnson's great society and then you can have reagan's military build up and they can have clinton you know canceling the debt and then you can have obama and trump what he's arguing is that from the viewpoint of of these these corporations these massive machines and supply lines and trade lines none of that matters none of it matters it's the it's the puppet over here and the puppet over here and meanwhile there's just a steel wall moving forward and it doesn't matter whether or not you want to stop it and it's yeah it's that's what i've learned from reading a bunch about this but yeah so to say all that to say are there are more things that you've learned similar to that? What you just said is you realize that maybe it, you know everyone really is just trying their hardest. I mean that that's an oversimplification, sure. but I, I'm struck by that because yeah, there's also there's a lot of duplicity, there's a lot of intrigue, there's a lot of uh, uh, backs, you know, infighting on all sorts of things that geopolitically as well as other things. But I guess I'm always struck by the. Um, we kind of view history often in terms of great actors and probably one of the few great actors that I, that I, you know, one of the sad things about reading a lot of history is that icons tend to get kind of dusted up a little bit. You know, uh, the pedestal gets, uh, knocked around quite a bit and the, 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 the gold, the gold edge comes off, you know, mm-hmm. and you start, all oh, these people are really flawed. But somebody who, who has really impressed me as I've read a bunch of, uh, uh, narrated a bunch of books about him, who I think is a great American, if I can use the word hero, that isn't talked about enough is George Marshall. Okay. General George yeah, Marshall. Marshall plan. Wasn't, you know, not a battlefield commander or anything like that. Ran the Pentagon during World War II, mm-hmm. but probably we would not have succeeded had he not first of all his 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 brilliant thing was raising eisenhower out of relative obscurity into a position of great he he understood people and how to use people his only failure or biggest failure was really after he was retired he was pulled out of of retirement to go to china to try to broker a deal between uh chiang kai-shek and mao Mm -hmm. (laughs) duh it didn't work, you know. I mean, it, it was like, but that—that that was, and he knew it. It was, and it was too bad. It's kind of a poor coda to the end of a brilliant career. But you know, he—he he, uh, first time in history, I think anyone ever tried to do something that that he got the American people behind and the government behind to do the Marshall Plan. Mm-hmm. 
turned enemies into allies and rebuilt a shattered economy, not coincidentally driving the greatest economic expansion of the United States ever in world history you know so it, it was a win 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 you know but but a really uh but he was somebody that never seemed to really care about if he got the credit or not mm. he was surrounded by really uh egomaniacs you know, macarthur Patton, uh eisenhower to eisenhower not so much but but still a strong, there's a lot of egos you know yeah. you don't get far without a big ego yeah and uh, uh, but he just seemed to not oh then dealing with the the military especially the navy people Nimitz and so forth after uh, Pearl Harbor which is trying to get us focused in terms of getting into the war and stuff like that uh, really impressive I, I I recommend you reading some more stuff about him and I I'll, I'll think of some of the books that I I read that uh, really impressed me uh, with him specifically I think I think he's an underrecognized figure. Everybody knows about him, but they don't really know anything about him. I certainly he, don't. Yeah, that's the way he lived. He he uh, he just did his job. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, and he it, just did it really well for the most part. He had he had his failures, you know, like everybody. But uh, that's somebody that's really has come through to me over time. Is instead of being diminished by what I've read about him, uh, instead of all the clay starting to stick to their feet, uh, he's somebody that seems to come through stronger and stronger. The more I read about him, that's very fascinating because you're right. You're you're right. Is somebody trying to join this Zoom meeting? Hmm. Something's in the waiting room. I don't know who that is. Um, is uh, that's never happened before? Um, but yeah, you're I'm right. Is excuse me. I'm not here. Uh, <laughs> I'm not here. Um, it's you're right though that a, a common theme. You know, reading about Patton. Or reading about yeah, MacArthur, uh, JFK, Reagan. You read about all these guys, and you're right. You, the gold uh, sheen starts to come off, and you're like, "Oh man!" You're like, and in a weird way, I kind of enjoy that because it it makes me feel like uh, when you see how human they are, you start to go, "Oh okay, like maybe I could do that." Not saying I'm going to be president, but I mean, he's like, you, you realize that these people aren't infallible. You're like, oh, oh they're, they're, they are human. Yeah. They, and that I think it's are, good. Yeah, it, it's important to know. And it's important for us to uh, to not, you know, we, we are so quick to judge as people, you know, and, and, and especially now with our sort of cancel culture, you know, yeah, you know. You, somebody just steps out of line a second. And it's like their whole life is erased. Shing, just and, take uh, them out. I, 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 I mean, I, I think it's a. Okay, I'm. I think it's a phase that will pass, and people yeah. will you know, return, but to a, a more balanced view. I, I, but I'm, I've always been that way. I kind of because that's the way I am myself. I'm kind of moderate in most things. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not extreme political one way or the other. Yeah, I, yeah. But, I'm with you. I think. I think it's a phase. I think what we're going through right now. I think it's. I'm sure that. I mean, we've kind of been through something like this before, in terms of insanity. Right, the '60s. Well, 68 was yeah. by far a more violent time. Kent but State. Major assassinations, uh, uh, destruction in the streets on a level that we hadn't seen in years. Ironically, we seem to go through this in this country with depressing regularity. You can go back to some of the labor union fights in the 30s. I mean, this country hung uh, on a knife edge between going full communist or full fascist. A couple you know, times. A couple times. 
I, I, because it, it, it was so extreme, you know, and some people would say if it wasn't for World War II, which kind of forced everybody to focus on something else, we might not have made it, you know. But, uh, yeah, if, if that's not a, a chilling reality is... is there looking... were times before that, you know, in the, uh, uh, some of the, I think 1876 was another one, that, that election of that year. Uh, uh, yeah, where it went for like 100 days past the vote or... Let's and then let's look at some of the stuff before the Civil War. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, eighteen fifty. You yeah. know, around the Dred Scott. I mean, the uh, uh, oh, I was just reading about somebody was talking. You know, because of, uh, there's been a lot of talk lately since January sixth about mm-hmm. you know the militarization of people in Congress and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And it kind of and this one uh, writer was talking about should have should have been in uh, the House of Representatives in 1850 that uh, some, I think uh, one of the uh, Northern representatives counted 78 Southern representatives who came on the floor packing their guns out in the open and, and basically saying, you disagree with me, I will, I will cudgel you and I may awesome. take you outside. You know, we, awesome. we, we, we've had, uh, <laughs> awesome. uh, and, I mean, and, and we've, we've, I've read about those, you know, events where, you know, they got into such anger and they just, beat the hell out of each other right there on the, you know, so that's amazing. We, we've had some, uh, uh, inflamed tempers. Yeah. Yeah. More than, you know, absolutely. And, I mean, Andrew Jackson used to duel with his, his, his enemies and then kill them. Yeah. So that, I mean, not to minimize any of the issues sure. that are happening now, but I, I kind of view it as like, if you cast a cold eye on, on, you know, on history, it's like, yeah, it's it's bad we've been through bad stuff before somehow most of the time calmer minds cooler minds prevail and we move on in some way uh, what i always point to is we got through the cuban missile crisis to me i look at that and i'm like we got another, through that another knife edge the Good knife God. edge of all knife edges yeah, could have gone could have gone way wrong and not only that it's not just that we had to, oh the soviets all of jfk's military advisors they were all pushing for let's nuke them right now i mean he had his own men saying let's yeah. do it i mean lemitzer uh lemay they were all lemay lemay is a piece of work i have to say <sighs> what i've read about it he's he's I have a I have a, a love hate with him. I mean, you gotta just love the hard charging. I mean, I gotta respect it. I mean, he he always was at the front of his bomber formations. The boy was, but he was wrong so often, and he just kept going wrong. <laughs> it just you know, brushed air it power, off. Air power will always win a war. No, it never has, never will. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, it happened yet. You yeah, know? and uh, uh, so uh, yeah. He's he's something. Lemay, he was something else. I mean, I think it was um, not 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 sixty three. I think it was before that. But there's a quote of him where uh, he used to he used to run. Obviously, he was put in charge of a strategic air command and Operation Chrome Dome, where they had the constantly um, always an air B fifty. I mean, think uh, uh, Doctor Strange of. But he had this thing where he used to take at the time like some of our first supersonic bombers i think b-47s or 57 hustlers and he would take whole fleets of them and he would have them full afterburners go over the arctic circle directly at the soviet union and then not until right at the edge of like their waters whatever international waters are 
he'd have them all slow down and then just do a sharp Yui. Yeah. Just to, he said he was training his men for what it would look like, but obviously we never gave the Soviets any warning of what we were doing. Right. And every once in a while, like, uh, you know, I think he did this like twice. And uh, some, it might have been Kennedy, it might have been Eisenhower. They were like, hey, like, they thought that this was war. And uh, like, we just squeaked by. They made like a back channel call. We told him it's just a drill. And LeMay said, uh, with a little more luck, we would have had World War Three. Like, this guy was chomping at the bit. And it's, yeah. I think... Well, they were looking at what they considered to be a final solution. I'll use it advisedly. A final solution to the political... To the uh, communist problem, yeah. That's what they viewed it as. And, uh, yeah. It, yeah, it's... Uh, JFK said, you don't want LeMay deciding whether or not you go into battle. But if you are going into battle, you want LeMay leading the charge. I think actually that's true of a whole bunch of our generals, like sure. Patton, MacArthur, and others. That, that that once once you're engaged, Sherman, yeah, they're they're, they're really good. Release you know, the dogs, yeah. Release the dogs, but keep that dog chained up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that dog doesn't get to decide when the leash comes off, right? Yeah, keep it in his kennel with yes. the muscle. Yes, and, uh, if but, you, but, if, yeah. If, right. if you need them, great. I have a question. Sure, this is fun. But what made you think that I would be some, you know, because I, I, I kind of consider myself, I'm certainly not an expert about anything. I'm a talking head. You know, I, I narrate other people's words and stuff. What made you think that I would be interesting to talk to? I don't know, man. Some people <laughs> I just look at and I go, people always ask me, they're like, what's the topic of this podcast? And I always tell them, I have no topic. I, I like Cold War. I like biology. I like the future of space travel. I mean, but those are some things I like, but it's. It'd be like if uh, it'd be like if you loved football, and everyone's like, "Oh, so you're going to do a football?" You know, so you love watching football. The reality is, is you probably like watching any sport where someone dedicates themselves to the game and just goes the extra mile, whether it's cricket or checkers. I really like talking to people that are passionate about something. I don't sure maybe if it's about stuff we like similarly, like right we're doing right now, you can kind of vibe a little more. But I mean, I've had on people that paint people that write sci-fi people that i mean stuff i know nothing about and never will i just like when someone's passionate about anything you know speaking of sports one of the few books that i've ever narrated that really got not for me uh necessarily as a narrator because again just the talking head but the author got kind of hammered it was a biography of walter payton called Sweetness by Jeff Perlman, the author. It's really good. But the bottom line is Walter Payton was a sad, a sad individual. Really? Uh, Kind of a, you know, fantastic, you know, incredible and gifted athlete, but basically a permanent child in a lot of ways. Hmm. Uh, He never really... He never had the mat- you know maturity to really grasp the stuff that was happening to him, and uh, and and as you read the book, it just kind of uh, he never felt like he was recognized properly. So there was a, a need there and stuff, and had just had one tremendous uh, accomplishment after another, you know, in terms of sports. But it's one of the saddest books I ever read, and, and boy, did the people in Chicago not want anyone to say anything bad about Walter Payton. So this this poor author got kind of hammered. 
for basically presenting a, a fairly unvarnished portrait of a person who, who kind of, you know, after he left the game, kind of diminished into, uh, um, he became kind of a sad spectacle, not an alcoholic or anything like that, yeah. but kind of a, a shadow of, of what was there before. And it was sad. It was one of the saddest books I've ever read. Yeah. Uh, um, but that was the case. Flip side, he, this guy also wrote another book called Showtime, which was about the uh, the, uh, the the Magic Johnson era mm-hmm. Lakers. Mm-hmm. That was a hoot and a half. Really, I, I my, at that time I had my son. My son's about is 30, 31 or thirty two. He was a basketball player, and I, I was too in high school. And uh, but at that time uh, he was home from college, and when I was doing that book, and uh, and I had him engineer for me, so he really didn't know anything about other than you know magic johnson is a legend blah 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 yeah. but you don't really know and so we'd be i'd be narrating stuff and then my my son would be going and he'd click me over the thing and say did that really happen yeah you really do that and i'd say let's let's youtube it yeah and we we would watch it and and you know i'm <laughs> to see magic johnson in his prime i, I had forgotten just what a phenomenally gifted athlete he was and uh, uh and now a lot of the things that he did then seem somewhat commonplace you know it's not so uncommon to see a a guy six nine you know playing a yeah. point guard yeah you know it's unusual but it's not uncommon but he kind of broke the mold totally yeah and that was so much fun and it was great fun to share that with my son because you know it's one thing to talk about it it's another thing to actually see it yeah and, it's it's all it's all relative you're right i mean you see someone now do something in sports and you're like yeah yeah i get it you have to go back and look at what was the norm for the time i mean like yeah. bill russell and red Auerbach, like winning like 10 out of 11 championships or something like that's insane because because competition is competition yeah period it, you know you still got to beat the best of the best at the time of your time yeah i mean babe ruth might not be that impressive if he played right now he might probably wouldn't be and of course there's a lot of argument there too in in terms of there were probably guys in the negro leagues at the time that that oh yeah that that could have pummeled him bested him yeah Yeah. for sure but it doesn't change the fact that for a guy that did everything wrong you know uh if you see some of those pictures of him uh you know i mean he's heavy drinker he's got this gigantic beer gut he's got these spindly little legs where did he get the power because <laughs> you know, the power all comes from the lower body yeah and, uh, where did he get the power to hit like that I, it's it's you look at him and go okay a freak of nature somehow you yeah know, but, but great fun to watch yeah. some of the old uh cinescopes and yeah stuff. you have those stories right i mean like a ted williams you're like oh this guy would have been the best hitter of all time but uh oh sorry he went and flew fighter jets in world war ii for a couple of years I read, another, I read another biography about uh, a narrated one about uh by uh, uh Learson. i can't remember his first name now about ty cobb mm-hmm. and another iconic figure that you don't know about all we know is that he's a dirty player yeah yeah and, and and it's like wow that's that's sort of like the people that came after him kind of or maybe some of his victims you know writing the narrative about him because he certainly was not any dirtier than any other player of his time yeah he was a fierce competitor and you just look at his stats and I mean, yeah <laughs> i mean for not it's too you know but yeah. that, was, that was that was another one that was we had a book when i was growing up i think it was at my grandparents house 
and it was it was an old book then when I was little, but I used to read it. And that's one thing I always remembered I was reading. I was like, how come we never hear about Ty Cobb? And like, I don't even like baseball, but I was always like, there's a guy that was like the original Babe Ruth. It was like 20 years before him, right? It was like 1902, 1903. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, we had about, uh, four or five, four or five years where he was just, uh, uh, but during those years he was tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you, you, you always learn it's in, there are weird stories like that though, where you learn the background and you're like does anyone else know about this i mean tomorrow i'm having on ben westoff he's an author i've had him on once before he wrote the book fentanyl inc but uh he also wrote a book uh yeah that was a heavy one but he wrote a book called uh, original gangsters and it's the rise of like east coast west coast hip-hop and i just finished that man one thing i took away from that is i never knew that george hw bush and laura bush or yeah laura is it laura or barbara was george hw with barbara uh, George H.W. was Barbara. George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush. That's 41, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the older one, yeah. Yeah. He and his wife lived in Compton for two years. Like, straight out of Compton. They lived there. And that's because that was the main point for, apparently, embarkation or disembarkation for troops going to the South Pacific during World War II. They came back. You had the GI Bill. You had a bunch of really affordable housing catered to them. And then you had all these defense contractors in Southern Cali. And it was just kind of like, hey, here's a good plant. To, here's a good place to plant our feet. But George and Barbara Bush lived in Compton. <laughs> Straight out of Compton. That's, that's a what, great That's a great uh, detail. Yeah. First thing. Yeah. yeah, it's little things like that that I that always stick out to me. Where I'm just like, that's fantastic. Um, if if you want a book that is one of my favorite books because it really, to me, I was I was telling my dad the other day. No one book has shed more light onto World War II for me than Blitzed by Norman Oler. It's. I'll email that one to you as well because that's how much it sticks out to me. And it's it's an in-depth history of Hitler and the Nazi high command's drug use. And my God, this guy, and I always say this line, so I'm sure people are rolling their eyes. He made Hunter S. Thompson look like a teetotaler. Hitler was in, I mean, obviously we know, but I mean, in terms of drugs, I mean, insane, legitimately. What was he using? Everything. Absolutely everything. He would wake up in the morning. He would get a shot of uh, get a shot of amphetamine, and then he'd also get like morphine and eucadol. And it was the original speedball, the thing that killed Chris Farley. He would wake up, and that's what he would do in the morning. He'd go up to his castle in the mountains, and apparently he would get really high on meth. And he would do impressions of the World War gun- World War One machine guns to Eva Braun, which, if you actually stop and dissect that, means that Hitler, high as a kite was going by himself up in the mountains like some and he his doctor dr tador morell he would just make up concoctions for hitler because hitler always wanted to be on the cutting edge of things so he would take things he would take like the the testicles of bulls and like the blood of lions he would mix it with phosphoric acid and like vitamin b he'd put it in ampules and then inject hitler with it in the morning he said towards the end He'd pick him off the ceiling later. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, no. But he said at the end of his life, Hitler, he said his blood was so coagulated, it came out like jelly when he wow. would, because he, he was on so many, I mean, what, um, Erwin Rommel, the amount of meth that those guys were on, and the stories of them kind of, and I didn't know this, but the Blitzkrieg wasn't planned, the Blitzkrieg wasn't planned as a Blitzkrieg. It was in hindsight, 
they realized what it was. At the time, there was no big plan for that. The plan was sure. I mean, like any invasion or beginning of a war, you know, surprise, violence of action, hit them hard, you know, fog of war. But when when Rommel would report back from where they were, Hitler thought that he was, he's like, no, 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 no. He's like, that can't be right because I'm looking at the map and that would mean that you went 400 miles last night. And he'd be like, correct. And he was like, what the hell? But like, that's what happened. So this whole thing that unfolded, it wasn't planned. This whole thing happened. It's kind of like what we were saying about history earlier. It's in hindsight that we put it in these neat little boxes and we say, World War One, World War Two, the Great Depression. But there is no borders. It's all blended together like tie-dye. It's like they didn't know. It wasn't until hindsight that because they didn't do it again. So this wasn't their game plan. They just looked back and they went, that was, I guess, a lightning war. It happened like that. It's, it is insane. And then Goering, or was it Goering, I think? The head of the Luftwaffe, yeah, Goering. So, so when they had, when they had the British at uh, Dunkirk, and they were closing in for the kill, Goering every morning he would wake up and take out his like custom made like porcelain and chrome syringe, and he would take a huge hit of morphine because he was wounded, and I think World War One as well as the Reichstag fire, he got addicted to morphine, but he would just get high as a kite every morning, and he and Hitler would go out into the woods. Hitler would wake up and take his. It was called um, Pervitin. It was their their cap form of uh, of meth came in. It looked like Mentos. They said it had it. was like Pervitin. You peel back a little foil and you take your hit of meth. They would take that and go into the woods in the morning and just talk. And Goering was like, no, I have, you know, high as a kite on morphine. It was like, I have this plan. He's like, let's not finish off the British at, at Dunkirk with ground forces. He was like, the Luftwaffe, they will come in. And like their their Stuka dive bombers, they call it the Horns of Jericho because they're so loud. And they're like, it's going to be this glorious propaganda win. We're going to go in there. We're going to bomb them on the beaches. And then Hitler, high as a kite on meth, completely different high versus morphine. He would always look at it as like, yes, he wants these big propaganda wins. And he was like, and I need to use that because I need because he always pit his top generals against each other so that they would never come at him. Divide and conquer. So he was on board. So they called this whole thing. Meanwhile, the British generals are saying it will take a miracle at Dunkirk for us to not be finished. And that's exactly what happened. They got they got three days or something. Operation Barbarossa. So he would go. Hitler was like, I want to go take I want to go take Russia right now. His generals. They said it was so stressful to go into that room with him to have his meetings at the Wolf Wolf's Lair. Right. That eventually Tator Morell would start to come to them and it'd be like, you know, you're visiting the in-laws and you throw back an extra drink. It's like he'd go to the generals and be like, I can help you guys out if you want to go deal with Hitler. So he would start giving them Pervitin, meth, or Eucadol, which was the original like codeine. So his generals started to go into there because back when they were sober, whenever someone would voice up Hitler, this is not smart. We we can't take on Russia during the winter. Like the, the, historically, that doesn't work. And he was fired. Sometimes he'd disappear. So these other generals were like, screw it. So they started drinking the Kool Aid. They would get they would take their Pervitin pills. They would get shots of Eucadol. So now they were on speed balls. So they would go in and start reading their own press reports. If you so Hitler would be like, I want everyone to go to Russia, and they were all like, Hell yeah, let's do it. And that's how this stuff unfolded. And you look at it now, and you're like, I had this big view of World War II, and I now realize a whole lot of the reason why the world is the way it is today. That we're speaking, Hi, I'm Tommy, instead of Isha Liba Thomas is because these guys didn't know how to put down the needle <laughs> and like this, this is an incredible story this 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 almost sounds like it would make a great absurdist 
black comedy. Yes, like a, a Quentin Tarantino movie. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's what it sounds like. Yes. Dude, okay, before you read the plot to seize the White House, you need to read Blitz by Norman. I listened to that book. I swear to I'm not Norman, I, Norman Oler. Norman Oler. O H L E R. Yeah. I had I had him on this podcast and we talked about that. Wow. I listened how, how did he get this where did he get the story from? I mean, how where did the research he, he goes into it in the book. He builds all of it up. He, he'll break chapters apart and be like, it'll be like this, you know, he'll be teaching history and then it will like be back to present day, visiting D.C., going into the archives, meeting with the heads of these former pharmaceutical companies in Germany. A lot of stuff that it was declassified, but just no one really put everything together. He gets Tador Morell's journal, his doctor, and he starts to paint this whole picture. And then you start to realize, like, holy shit, <laughs> like, and it just... And I, I mean, it spirals off into more and more insanity, and then obviously ends with Hitler's suicide and downfall. But I listen to that when I have an author, I'll, I'll listen. Obviously, I'll listen to their book at least once. A lot of times, I'll listen to it twice because I want to just get a better understanding of it. Whatever. I listen to Blitz. I'm not exaggerating. Eight times in a row, I couldn't <laughs> stop listening to it. I was, I was laughing maniacally. I was, I'd be driving to work. I worked at a liquor store this past summer, and I would be, you know, I'd be talking to people at work. I'd be, like, did you know this about Hitler? And they'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? But I couldn't stop talking about it because I was like, does anyone else know about this story? It was like a New York Times bestseller. He's become like an, he's a huge author now. I'd love to check that out because that sounds like that. that that'd be great. That'd be great. I, dude, if I were you, I, I keep saying, dude, sir. I, right. Okay, dude. Go, I would go get that book, like, get it yesterday and just start listening. I mean, there's no buildup. You'll be three minutes in and you'll be like, holy. It's one of those things that it's it's from the get. There's no slow and steady. You turn it on and within four minutes, you're like, you're like, honey, shut up. You're like, what is going on? You listen to this and it's just how it escalates and how it just, yeah. it goes into crazier things than you'd ever imagine. Well, a lot of crazy things make a lot of sense, you know. Yeah. Uh, a lot of decisions that were made that were like, inexplicable except yeah if you got a room full of people who are higher than the proverbial heights yeah uh, they're making some irrational uh, yeah. leaps of faith you know yeah. so yeah well and it also made a lot of his stuff makes sense I and mean, i know we got we got five more minutes is is germania right the city he wanted to build where he wanted a dome that was it it was going to be able to hold like three hundred thousand people he wanted to rip up all the railways in europe and he wanted to put in these double wide railways and create these new german trains that would have been like three stories he wanted to do he wanted to put a laser in space to redirect uh, light at undes- undesirables and it all makes a lot of sense when you look back and you go oh they're on meth yeah that's <laughs> These delusions, right? It's like it like a late 2000s, early 2010s Charlie Sheen. It kind of makes sense. You go, oh, okay. Like the things <laughs> they were doing. It's, it's, it's 2020 in the United States in the last 18 months or so. We've got like a working prototype of a rail gun. Hitler wanted a rail gun in the 40s. I mean, just, just that's how you can look at it. Is, um, but yeah, the, everything about it makes sense his crazy moves why did we do this i mean a lot of a lot of american generals at the time they did not know why in the world they didn't continue at dunkirk they yeah. they were they were hesitant to move forward because they were like is this a are we being kind of toyed into something what are we is he just this master chess player no he was and then even funnier 
is when his high would come down and his generals would be like, all right, we've moved 100,000 men into into uh, to Soviet Union. I swear to God, Hitler would say, I'm not interested in that today. And they'd be like, what are you what are you talking about? We've just opened up a two front war. And he'd say, I'm not interested in that today. And he would go on. Maybe he would be on painkillers for a week. And he was very like, maybe we should slow down the war effort. You know, maybe we should. And then everyone would be like, okay. And then he'd take a hit of Pervitin and he'd be like, we need to invade every country on the planet. Like, to me, that book tied up more loose ends about World War II than any other book has done for me. Probably any other 10 books has done for me. I know I just talked to you off the last 10 minutes. Sorry. No, but- <laughs> It makes you wonder because there's someone else uh, who, who just left office who has been that erratic in terms yeah. of the, the decision making, and yeah. uh, you wonder what was he taking? Because well, I'm all, you see, you see Trump at speeches and yeah, you know. Well, that's <laughs> that, what what is, what was he on? You know, well, that's the and, thing is that's that's when I was talking to Norman Oler. This was like November, and I go, "Are you going to write a book one day about Trump in the White House?" Because well, that's the thing, right, Trump. You know, notoriously, he doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. No one in Germany, aside from his innermost circle, knew what he was doing. Yeah. He was a he supposedly at the end of World War One on the last on November eleventh, nineteen nineteen, here or eighteen, he threw his last pack of cigarettes into the river because I had to keep those things away from my body. So the whole image was, I'm this sober guy. I am your leader. The reality is, is he's. I mean, he he makes like Jimi Hendrix look like a straight edged arrow, like. So that's what I asked Mr. Oler. I was like, are we going to get a book on Trump one day? Far off in the future when it's all declassified, are we going to get a book on Trump one day? And he was like, I don't know. I think so. Maybe. (laughs) I was like, that's what I think, man, is we're going to get a book on like, oh, you have 10 feet higher. Like, all Mexicans are rapists. We're going to be like, oh, okay. He was on some good stuff. Click. (laughs) Click. And you go, oh, it all, I get it. And it's, yeah, yeah that's, uh, I don't cleaning really know. Up, yeah. We're cleaning up the mess. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. So that's what I, t- I was like. We need a book on that. And, uh, I want him to segue into all of the Nazis coming to the United States. And then as we went with the creation of MK ultra, I wanted him to segue into that because I'll, I'll leave you with this. I didn't know this, but at the death camps towards the very end, they actually started testing on subjects, things like ayahuasca and early forms of LSD which I can't imagine a worse place to trip than an actual yeah. concentration camp but it late if you read what the reports say it was the early you could say it was a precursor to what would become MK Ultra and so I've been begging Mr. Oler I'm like we need a part 2 to Blitzed we need to I want him to do a part 1 and a than a part three. I think Blitz is the middle. I think he needs to do a whole book on alcohol between 1933 and 1940 and how that was responsible for a lot of it. And then I wanted him to do like an MK Ultra book. But ultimately, I'm just a crazy 30 year old sitting in Maryland and he is this renowned author. So I'm not sure how serious he took my advice. But um, I don't know if an, uh, uh, writers, uh, if someone has a good idea and they're not feeling proprietary about it, yeah. you'll pick up. Yeah. I, yeah. So, but I said I'd only keep you for an hour, so we'll wrap this up. But, Mr. Malcolm Hillgardner, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. It's been um, a really pleasure to talk to you, Tommy. I mean, you're, 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 uh, talk about a far reaching conversation. It's been fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, man, if you ever want to come back on and talk about history or shoot the shit, 
I'm down, man. I I enjoyed it. I had no idea what we were going to talk about today, and uh, it kind of all unfolded as it always does. And you're a cool dude, man. So um, I'll send you the links to those two books if you want to listen to it. Man, if you want to come back on and shoot the shit, I would love to. If not, that's cool, too. You don't need to answer right now. You can sit on it. But um, I'll email you those books. And uh, thank you very much, sir. Yeah, thank you. It's been it's been a pleasure, like I said. Awesome. All right, man. I'll, I'll send you the link when this is uploaded. It'll probably be sometime tomorrow morning. Great. All right. God bless. You have a good one. Bye-bye. You too. Thank you.